Today, it's Clint Jasper joining you for a trip around a big country. This week, we're reflecting on a life on the high seas when we chat with a man who's retiring from what could be one of the country's most dangerous jobs, working on a crayfishing boat off Tasmania's wild west coast. We'll hear from some young people who are sharing their experience with the world after living through the worst recorded flood in Australian history. And we'll meet a couple of mates who are carving out a new profession as beekeepers in the top end. They're finding it's a job that has many benefits. When you open up a hive, you see, you recognise how the hive is moving. You can tell within seconds if it's queenless or not. You can tell the health of the hive. You can't think of anything else except for the bees. The smell comes out, you have honey dripping on your fingers. It's an amazing experience and it's like reading a good book if you're into reading or sitting down and you know just really relaxing in the bush. You, you come away really relaxed, really happy. We'll meet those happy beekeepers who are sharing the joy of their job by teaching the trade in a remote Indigenous community. That's coming up a little later. First today, we're heading into the greenhouse at one of the country's largest commercial rose growers. This is the variety mint tea, which came in approximately three years ago and is a beautiful sort of cream green coloured rose. This beautiful rose growing in Tasmania's Tamar Valley has its origins in France. The Lee family have been growing roses at Rosevears in northern Tasmania since the late 1970s. And for the past four decades, they've been working with French rose breeder Mayland. What's interesting is you see there's a, there's a little bit of pink on the outer petal. There's the green outside that is really, really nice. The productivity is good for, for what you saw. Yes, it's, yes. So, and Var's life is excellent, which is also an incredibly important characteristic for uh, cut roses. Hello, I'm Larissa Smith, and I'm walking through a state-of-the-art greenhouse with grower Andrew Lee and Matthias Mayland, who is visiting from France. The pair are looking over some of the colourful roses that are growing here, including some very new varieties. This is so new, it is actually still a code-numbered variety. So yet to be officially, you know, given a name. Well, because here some things arrive before they are commercial anywhere in the world. And the, 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 the game is that it is selected for here for the conditions of Australia and specifically of Tasmania. And then to see if it will be reproduced at different places. Something that can be selected here can go easily to Japan or to Mexico in high altitude. So it's that climate that is temperate, but basically with a lot of sunlight. So it's, it's really beautiful to see it at different places of the world. Then you can gather, the, you can have an imagination, but then the color has to fit the locals. And what the local wants might be different in different places. But there, it's a peachy kind of light color, nude. Wow, it's gonna work automatically. I mean, as a bunch, you see, if you take two, you put them next to each other, it's gonna be beautiful. Do you have a rose here that, that gives off a, a special fragrance? Or is the fragrance kind of lost in selecting for other genetic properties? The fragrance was not looked after for cut flower. Why? Simply because there was so many data that we have to look. Productivity, uh, the possibility of shipping it, how long it's going to stay in the vase. So the fragrance is something that is not that important. But the market is asking it more and more. It's not the producer that's asking it, 
it's not the wholesaler and it's a little bit the florist but the florist is being pushed by the people that use the roses at the end so we have a program right now in france with the universities to see what kind of uh, genetics is behind the fragrance there's a um, legend about the rose that if there is fragrance the rose will decay faster well it's a real legend it's it's in the brain of the business but basically it's not true and we will prove it because we are working on that subject because that's a need to have real cut flower with real productivity with real life uh, base life but with a fragrance so this is our second main production greenhouse and this greenhouse has 38,000 plants in production and produces in excess of 400,000 stems of roses per year. What makes this greenhouse different to the one that we were just in? It's newer. <laughs> uh, this house was actually specifically constructed. We laser leveled the site. We use natural ventilation, so the site actually has a 10% slope, which therefore we don't need fans to move air through the greenhouse, which is a massive energy saving. We currently use state-of-the-art Israeli-made plastic to provide the ideal light environment for our crop. One of the issues that we have in Tasmania is of course the oscillation in day length from winter to summer. So in winter we need maximum light transmission. In summer we actually have to reduce the amount of light transmission to reduce stress on the plants. So this Israeli plastic is actually diffused uh, and if you look at it you can't actually, can't actually see through it. The light is actually broken up and reflected at many angles as it comes through the film which provides this very even light inside the greenhouse. How important is sustainability and the way that your breeders grow their roses? Uh, is that something that your clients ask about? Well, it's new for them because the, the, the market before was just import, import, import. And now there's a, there's a little bit of sense of, oh, let's, let's try to put back jobs. Let's try to have the flowers as fast as possible to the florist. So the freshness is there and minimum impact around actually if we could have a positive impact, that would be even better. So that, that's the interest of, of that kind of thing. It's interesting, up until the pandemic, approximately 90% of Australia's flowers across all types of flowers were imported from overseas. Courtesy of the pandemic and reduced airline flights, the number of imported flowers was rapidly reduced. And so a lot of Australian grown flowers have come back onto the market, which is definitely sustainable in terms of less CO2 miles or however it's described, which is really, really good. At a farm in Darwin's rural area, Caleb Cardinow and Jermaine Coolwell are setting up their beehives to help pollinate crops. We've got some pumping beehives here and they're located on a farm here at Myrtle Point and we're here to help uh, the local farmer with his pollination needs. G'day, I'm Matt Brand. I'm in a bee suit and I'm catching up with these two who have started up the company Territory Bees. It's a departure from their former careers as youth workers and it's a business that Caleb sort of fell into by accident before recruiting his best mate, Jermaine. I fell into it from a business deal gone wrong or uh, in retrospect, a business deal gone right. Uh, I was trying to make up a couch for the wife from some recycled timber from Cyclone Marcus. So I got a, a local chap to, to cut me up some wood 
anyway, he put the wood into his kiln, but then another customer came along with an urgent job and said, look, I'll pay you double, can you quickly do my job now? This guy pulled my wood out, left it in the elements, and it got all cracked and, and warped and whatnot. I went back there and I said, mate, I can't take this. Like, I can't actually make a couch out of this anymore. He said, well, I can't give you your money back. I said, well, what can you give me in, in return? And we went into a shed and I saw some beehive boxes on the wall. I was like, have you got bees, mate? He's like, yeah, i got bees. I'm like, well, how about a beehive? So I said, done. So we shook on it. That day I took home a beehive, knowing absolutely nothing about how to care for bees. No bee suit, no protective gear or, or, or whatnot. Um, with... <laughs> and hang on a minute, uh, what did the wife say when you rocked up home with a beehive? She just said, give me some honey. Like, so she, she wanted something, you know, she was like, give me some honey and, and some wax for candles or whatnot, and, you know, everything will be fine. However, within six months, I had about six hives in the backyard, and um, she noticed I was spending a little bit too much time on the bees. So she said, look, make this something serious or, or else, essentially. So Jermaine had come over in that time, and, um, yeah, our plan was hatched, essentially. And so this business, Territory Bees, tell us a bit about it, Jermaine, and... The projects that you're working on? Our primary focus is pollination, so providing pollination needs for farmers on their crops. We've also got a few exciting ventures in the works. Um, we've linked in with the Wat Air community and we'll start next year heading out there and just doing some education and hands-on practical work with some of the students at the high school there. Why Wat Air? Why bees? Well it was actually them that hit us up. Um, Caleb went to a training earlier in this year and one of their teachers had attended that training as well and just through conversation they reached out to us but to take you back a bit further when we first established our business we wanted and still want to create employment opportunities and train and upskill community members from across the territory to be able to do beekeeping on country and so the school have a similar passion and so they're wanting to see their students be skilled up. And, and I love the idea of what air honey. Yes, <laughs> definitely. Cool. Definitely. It's going to be great um, for sure. And so, yeah, two paths collided and um, Caleb continued conversations with the school and we got to visit the community out there earlier this year and just absolutely incredible response um, from a lot of the community members, from the different organisations out there. Within the hours of us, Matt, uh, touching down on the plane, we had the Rangers and, and Tamara Youth and other people going, this would be amazing for our community. And so essentially our passion is to give them, you know, education opportunity and a path to employment um, with the aim that as our business steadily grows in the territory, that we can then have them plug in with their own hives into our pollination contracts. And so they'll have a guaranteed market. But then when we went out there, there was so much in flower, just there was so much in flower. And you know, we went for a drive into the bush. You've got areas there that are the size of small countries and it's in flower. And so we were like, wow, this... Which could lead to unique honey. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, honey, honeycomb, wax. There's so many good things happening in that area if we can just bring community members along with us. We build that trust and relationship over the long term and um, build that local capacity. I really see this going, uh, you know, a long way. And... Um, it also taps into, I guess, the why of what we're doing, which is to bring sustainable education opportunity and employment within communities in the Northern Territory. So if we can develop a model that can be you know, copied and pasted around the Territory, I think it is within our grasp to do some immense good, I reckon. Finally, what do you love about bees? There's a calming nature to them. Um, yeah, you 
need to be, I guess, still and present when you're working with the hive, otherwise you get stung, that's not pleasant. But just something about, I guess, their hum, opening up the hive and taking it slow just allows you to ground yourself, really. Caleb? I mirror what Jermaine has said, but I would say it's probably the best tool I'm aware of for mental health. When you open up a hive, you see, you recognise how the hive is moving. You can tell within seconds if it's queenless or not. You can tell the health of the hive. You can't think of anything else except for the bees. The smell comes out, you have honey dripping on your fingers. It's an amazing experience and it's like reading a good book if you're into reading or sitting down and you know just really relaxing in the bush. You, you come away really relaxed, really happy and you also tune into a bit of nature and you also recognise the importance of bees and what they do for pollinating I'd say over 50% of the, the food that we eat on our plate. So if the more people that sort of get into beekeeping I say, the more awareness that we've got the more respect we have for bees and um, the more people that'll be happier in life, I dare say. <laughs> Caleb Cardino from Territory Bees, he spoke to Matt Brand at a farm near Darwin. Before that, Larissa Smith took us inside the greenhouse at Tamar Valley Roses in northern Tasmania. And you can see more on that story, including photos of some of the stunning roses on the RN homepage. Just look for the Big Country program page. I'm Claire Jasper, with you on RN. Still to come, the young flood survivors who shared their story at a United Nations disaster conference, and we'll meet the cray fisherman who's tying up his boat after four decades of a dangerous and adventurous life at sea. I'm Charlie Kiley. David Kiley's my real name. I've been fishing since 1981 out of Strawn. It was just a big adventure at the start and I wanted to go and do other things, but been doing it ever since. After 40 years, David Kiley is retiring from one of the most dangerous professions in the country, cray fishing off the west coast of Tasmania. Always based in Strawn, we, we turned up here when we were, I think I was five. My mum was a bush nurse, spent our early years here. Mum always sworn to Claire will never ever be fisherman. Despite his mum's wishes, he did head to sea, but his first impressions didn't win him over. I did a trip with Bobby Patton after I finished year 10, and I swore and declared, no, I'm never ever going to be a fisherman. Unfortunately, Bobby um, and his crew were lost at Granville Harbour, late 80s, I think it was. The thing about fishing is you only make a mistake once. You make it too many times, it'll catch up with you. So I learned that through the years. Hello, I'm Rick Eaves. I've climbed aboard David Kiley's boat, the Erin Kay, docked here in Mill Bay in Strawn, where he is getting it ready to pass on to its new owners. He is reflecting on his working life and says while it was a dangerous job, it was also an adventurous one. And the beauty of fishing, even when we work really hard, we were only at sea for, say, 90, 100 days a year. 260 days a year that you were home with your family, we were the kids. Most of us heading off to work, more concerned with the potential for tedium of the office. When you set off as a cray fisherman on that daily adventure, are there times when that's daunting too? Like you just don't really feel like confronting the risk of it someday? Yeah, there's, yeah, there's been plenty of times when you don't really want to go to sea. Years ago, you know, people used to work off the four-day forecast chart that used to come out in the paper about the only thing... A day later. Come on, a day <laughs> later. Yeah, there's plenty of times when you had to force yourself to go to sea. You're controlled by the weather. 
I've spoken with cray fishermen, so they, they don't mind bobbing up and down on a four to five metre swell. It's just when the wind comes across that as well. Exactly, yeah. So plenty of times when we, we've worked, you know, five, six metres of swell, we, which is big. It, it's like you're in a bloody elevator all day going up and down, up and down. And it's quite awesome, actually. You've got this power coming in underneath you. But put 20 knots of wind on top of six metres of swell and Nightmare. the middle of a mess. Yeah. yeah. I remember once we were at um, the Conicals, Arberg Bay, and we had our gears set. The weather came in really fast. The swirl made quickly and southwesterly 25, 30 knots. I had a crew on board called Basil Abel. We just about had all our gear on board and there was one pot. I reckon I can get that. Snuck in to try and get it and Baz was on the deck. I was in the wheelhouse and I looked up in front of me and see this big wave coming and it was green usually when they're green it means they're gonna break and i said to baz hang on baz and he turned his back to it he's hanging on to the line basket and this wave cracked right over the top of us and i ducked my head naturally in behind the wheel and when i ducked my head back up again thank god baz was still there and uh, we had no windows left in the wheelhouse the wheelhouse door we got blown out with all the water coming in the thing that i noticed all the water streaming off the pots and my dog was running up on top of the pots. Her name was Amy. And I'm worried for Amy at the moment. <laughs> she was running up the bow of the boat, right next to the anchor winch, so I thought, well, she's right, she can stay there. Well, we'll still handle the predicament, you know, a big sea on and no windows. The bilge alarms were going off, electronics were all gone, and we had to get out into deep water. Finally got off the conicals about a mile out, and we turned for Sandy Cape, and then we got hit by another big wave, side on. When all the water cleared, and I looked up the bow and I thought, oh no, can't see my dog, she's gone over. So we started steaming around, it was a hell of a sea on, trying to find this black dog. Called Amy. Called Amy, in the water. I'm worried and, for Amy again. Yes, and, and we were steaming around, we couldn't find her, we were steaming around for about 20 minutes, and I thought, well, there's no way in the world we're going to find her in this mess. Anyway, we started steaming for Sandy Cape again, got out on deck and started tidying things up, and I was moving one of the pots and there was my dog filled up one of the pots. I'm an okay fisherman, but I, I work hard at it. The good fishermen like that I know, like old Malcolm Hart and Mick Stacey and the ones that are really top, they, they've they got that hunter instinct. They've just got something else. But for me, once you're through those lines off at the wharf and you head out to sea, you're God, you know. There's no one looking over your shoulder. You know, for, the, for that freedom, you spend a week or 10 days at sea and there's nothing better than coming home, you know. Coming up that harbour and families here on the wharf to meet you. And my favourite place to fish is uh, High Rocky Wanderer. A couple of safe anchorages, reasonably safe anchorages. I mean, there's no safe, safe anchorage except for Macquarie Harbour or Port Davey. But I used to love working Troll Harbour. You'd be sitting out there and you'd be looking in on uh, Mount Heapscoop magazine and you think, geez, this is where Abel Tasman first sighted Tassie, you know, sort of, sort of imagining that. On this temporary school site on the north coast of New South Wales, there's a number of demountable classrooms with colourful cutouts in the windows. Hello, I'm Leah White and I'm here to meet two students from St Joseph's Primary School, Woodburn. For the time being, they're learning at this makeshift site in nearby Evans Head. We take a seat in a quiet, well, quiet-ish classroom and start chatting. Hi, I'm Ariella, I'm 12 years old and I'm from Woodburn. Hi, I'm Jasmine, I'm also 12 years old and I'm from Doomba. 
Both girls are too young to know what it's like to drive a car, drink at a pub or even vote for the representatives who will make crucial decisions about their futures. But at just 12 years old, they've already lived through the worst recorded flood in Australian history. Over the course of a single weather event in late February, both Ariella and Jasmine lost their homes, their school, their church and almost all of their belongings. Jasmine tells me about being woken up in the early hours of the morning as floodwaters rose faster and higher than anyone predicted. Oh, well, my mum woke me up around 3am. She was very calm, which really helped me. And about 4am, my mum called my friends, my friend's dad, to ask if he can come and pick us up. So about 30 minutes later, he came and picked us up and we had to jump over the balcony because it wasn't just over the roof yet. So that was a big help for us. And we had, my dad had to actually chuck our dog off the balcony to get into the boat. And as we were driving through, a kangaroo, a kangaroo swam up to the boat, but we couldn't really put him in the boat. So that was really, really sad. And we saw, we saw other people yelling out for help to see if they can come and get picked up. And later on, they did, of course. We lived at my friend's house for about three months, so we are just lucky that we had a house to stay in. When we got back to our house, we were really, really sad and we didn't really know what to think. And it went 4.4 metres up our house, so that's the bottom story and 400 millimetres into the top story. Gosh, so you would have lost just about everything. Yeah, it hit all the furniture, so it was a lot of money to repair. Ariella was also forced to evacuate her Woodburn home in a civilian boat with only a handful of belongings. When we got picked up by a friend, it was in a tinny, and when we were in there, I was in with my sister and my mum and dad were back at my neighbour's house, and just watching my town be underwater was really sad, and it kind of hurt me to see every single place that I've been to and had memories there just, you know, be all underwater and just ruined, absolutely ruined. My house is not yet repaired, but it should be in a year or so, and we, but we hope it, for it to be sooner. Since then, the girls, like thousands of others across the region, have been living and moving between temporary accommodation while they attend school at a temporary site. It will likely be a year or more before their school is either fully repaired from the floodwater which reached the height of the roof or relocated to an alternative site. Given the year they've had, it's no surprise that when they were offered the opportunity of a lifetime to ask a question on stage in front of a panel of United Nations and Red Cross representatives, they jumped at the chance. We're both 12 years old and in year six at St Joseph's Catholic Primary School in Woodburn, northern New South Wales. Both of us and half the students and staff at our school lost our homes in the flood. We lost our school, we lost our church. We've all had to move to another town to temporary housing and, temp and a temporary school. We've also lost our connection to the community. We are often told by adults that our voice is important, our experience is valuable, and that we can be the change that the future needs. If this is true, how is our voice and experience going to be authentically and actively sought out and included when preparing for the disasters that we know are likely to come and impact our future. 
How are you going to empower us to be the change that the future needs? Thank you. What was the reaction once you were up there and, and you'd finished saying what you were going to say? Oh, well, before we were, like, really excited and we couldn't stop smiling. And then when the time came, we got really, really nervous, but we did our best and it was really good. Was it nice? I mean, you spoke about young people's voices being heard. Do you feel like your voices were heard when you were on that stage? Yeah, we did, especially because after when we were walking around talking to people, we got so many people coming up to us, supporting us, congratulating us and telling us how much of a good job we did and how important it was. And do you think people are going to maybe start listening to young voices a little more now? I think they will and I really hope they do because adults have lived through lots of things but I feel like youth should still have a choice and, you know, a kind of input on things and I think that they could have some really good inputs and decisions. Yeah, and there can be a big difference between what adults and youth think because we have both many different experiences with stuff. Jasmine Hayden and Ariella Mangan, who spoke to a panel of United Nations and International Red Cross representatives about youth voices during disasters. They shared their story with Leah White and you can read more about their experience on the RN homepage. You'll find more on that story and all of the stories on today's program. Just look for the Big Country program page. That's the show for today. Thanks for listening and bye for now. 